to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of January 13th. Got six or seven stories on tap. We'll see what we have time for, and let's dive into it. First three stories are going to come out of healthcare IT news. The first one, too many providers are failing to meaningfully integrate data analytics. This is by Nathan Eddy, January 13th. Healthcare providers are failing to integrate digital data platforms into their IT infrastructure. And the the analytics into their clinical and operational workflows. This despite widespread availability of the technology and a definite need for it given the demands of value-based reimbursement. Those are among the findings of a Black Book survey of 748 provider organizations which found utilization of advanced analytics was described as quote negligible end quote by a whopping 80% of respondents. Even while the market for healthcare data analytics blooms, uh, booms and provider access to such tools has risen sharply in past years, multiple factors, ranging from a lack of strategic direction to the absence of internal data scientists, have sharply curbed usage. A lack of financial resources and a lack of reinforced training were among the other challenges providers cited. Just 15% of respondents reporting any meaningful utilization in financial forecasting and strategic planning. Read you two more lines here. Because analytics needs to be customized for each hospital or medical group, uh, for each business problem, analytics are often seen as complicated and time consuming. Uh, yes, they are. Still valuable. Uh, the picture doesn't look particularly rosy going into 2020 either, with just 2% of all C suite respondents reporting that they were budgeting and recruiting data scientists with healthcare expertise in 2020. All right, so thoughts on this. I'm not surprised by the low adoption. I think their numbers are probably real. I sort of disagree a little bit with why their reasoning for adoption is low. I, I really think it has to do with some distrust and just executive focus. There are so many projects out there to tackle. These tools are complicated, and I just feel that Something this complex really requires dedicated resources to work the problems. And many health systems are not going that way, certainly not in the community health uh, space. So we focus on things like mergers and competitors and regulatory requirements, and we're putting out the fire of the day, but not so much on utilizing that data that we have to try to generate the superior clinical and operational programs. And I talked about this a little bit in the program uh, earlier this week, or it was, uh, Sunday, I released it, Saturday night, with uh, Health Catalyst, and obviously a company that's devoted to generating insights from data and helping companies get to their operational and clinical goals. I think the, the key piece there is that you just have to start. Just pick some data that you trust and a problem that's important and has financial and clinical value and go after it. And I don't necessarily believe it takes a data scientist, like the article here is saying. Uh, I think you need project managers and physician leadership armed with just some basic data aggregation tools 
and along with some benchmarks so you know whether you're hitting your targets or not. So that's my two cents on the data analytic tools that we're not using. We should be using them. And certainly as a provider informaticist, if you have an opportunity to sit down and learn those tools, it gives you a huge advantage in terms of understanding where your health system can find value, whether that's in streamlining an operational program or reducing the cost of delivering care. Jump to the next article. This one, an AI platform helps diagnose prostate cancer according to a report in The Lancet. This is also Nathan Eddy in January 10th. A team of researchers in Sweden has discovered that an artificial intelligence platform is capable of accurately diagnosing prostate cancer in tissue samples, offering the potential to speed up diagnostics and reduce costs for healthcare services. The findings published in The Lancet Oncology in December suggest AI systems can be trained to detect and grade cancer in the prostate needle biopsy samples with an accuracy rate equal to that of international prostate pathology experts. And there's a quote here. An AI system with expert level grading performance might aid in standardizing grading and improve pathology expertise in parts of the world where it does not exist. So my take on it, I think it's great. And I think artificial intelligence will really dig into healthcare around these visual oriented processes. So we talked about Google and their, uh, they had a, breast cancer detection algorithm that was helping radiologists. And there's, uh, I think it was Rush in Chicago that has a tool they're using to help find pneumothoraces in, uh, on chest x-rays. These kind of visually based tools are going to lead the way in the, on the clinical side. And they, it, it's kind of ironic that they picked a, a Swedish uh, company here that's working with artificial intelligence and I'm pretty sure in Sweden, they don't do a whole lot of treatment for prostate cancer, but uh, nevertheless, they can, they can find it. I don't think they treat it. They tend to do more watchful waiting there. So, uh, and there's, we won't get into that debate about whether or not we should be even screening or testing for prostate cancer because there are studies out there that have shown surgical intervention just hasn't moved the needle and yet any urologist that you talk to would swear that they're saving lives. And uh, I've, I've certainly seen it go both ways there. So um, I'm glad there's AI that can help us with the diagnosis. And I think this is pretty early. I don't, I don't know that this is ready for widespread adoption, but keep an eye on that space of artificial intelligence that is focusing on the visual aspects. Next article. This is how one ACO saved 55 million in three years with help with uh, care coordination technology. Bill Sawicki, January 10th. And this is the Catalyst Health Network in Dallas, Texas. Dallas-based Catalyst Health Network is a clinically integrated network of 650 independent primary care providers and 85 care team members spread across 220 office locations. Essentially, like so many large healthcare organizations, we lacked visibility to close the loop on patient referrals and had tons of outdated retrospective claims data that we just couldn't catch up with. And that came, that quote was from Dr. Christopher Crow, president of the Catalyst Health Network, which is a top ACL. Read you another quote here. Every reputable EHR has a referral function. 
and where those referrals end up and how they're processed is different in every practice. We believed patients deserve consistency in the handoff from PCP to physicians or specialists and then back to PCP. If it's important enough to send, it should be important enough to make certain it is received. And so they worked with a third-party vendor. I won't mention the name. There's a bunch of them out there that do this. But the vendor is a provider of communication tools that help with care coordination technology. And the quote from them, I think is a good one here. The key to overcoming interoperability challenges wasn't to rely on multi-million dollar system implementations or integrations. It was to make care coordination and communication as easy and seamless as possible for providers from small specialty practices in Austin to major health systems in Dallas. This helped solve Catalyst's goal of establishing trans, uh, transition consistency and closing the loop on received referrals. Another quote from the, uh, the president of that ACO. Today, we are fully mapping the patient. We manage in and out of network referrals. We know when and where our patients receive care. We know who is responsible for closing the loop on a patient and who is dropping the ball. We know everything that has to do with our patient's experience going through the care continuum which is the power of a connected network. So the results, bottom line, with this care coordination and communication technology, Catalyst achieved a savings of 55 million in three years. My editorial is, I'm sure it's not the only thing that they did is just install this. So there's probably multiple things that they were doing, but this uh, they're saying is a big piece of it. Here's the, another quote. We started with the stark reality of not knowing exactly where our referrals were going, even if we did know who they were being faxed to. We certainly didn't know the outcome of the visit. Uh, we obtained the ability to map our entire network, which was really eye-opening. We quickly realized we had more than 3,000 specialty organizations and nearly 8,000 providers in our network providing care for around 1 million patients. So getting into a little bit more of the details, our coordinators began monitoring when a referral status changed from new to received. And if that didn't happen within 48 hours, a reminder was sent. We started tracking how long it took each provider to schedule appointments, which referrals were declined and the reasons why. Catalyst also recorded other valuable information such as how far outpatients were scheduled and did they show up for their appointment? And if so, what were the results of the visits? And being able to close the loop on the referral for Catalyst, more than 650 PCPs allowed them to uh, prepare to uh, deliver better care and ensure the best possible chance for improved outcomes. Final line here, we must accept that massive EHRs aren't enough to achieve interoperability and coordinate care, and the health system won't ever switch to just one uh, same EHR platform. My take on it, yes, I think the, the author here is, is right that interoperability is not going to happen easily or quickly, and if you are in the population health space, the ability to understand your referral patterns and then steer based upon those referral patterns is absolutely critical to saving money. You need to find the low cost, high quality providers, and then you wanna show either transparently, here's the data to those who are not low cost, high quality, and try to get them to be motivated to change or steer referrals elsewhere. And that requires data and it requires good communication. I've been involved with referral projects before. It is extremely difficult to do this, to get data back. And that is because of all the disparate uh, EMRs out there. You're, you're 
colleagues in private practice out in, in their clinic may be using a very small brand EMR and it doesn't have any interoperability with your large name brand EMR and you really have a black box and you have no idea what happened to that patient when they went out there. Uh, were they referred back into your system? Did that doctor, for whatever the reason, decide to operate on them at a different hospital with a different EMR? You don't know. You have no way of knowing. So really valuable part of population health is referral tracking. And if you can be part of that, I think it's really valuable. The providers will have great insights as to why referral patterns are going in one way. It was very, very dirty analytics when we started this project. I remember seeing, uh, okay, why is the, uh, the podiatrist getting GI referrals? And it's just because the data was entered poorly. And we found hundreds, thousands of referrals that where the, the data just was just flat out wrong. And it, did, it took off two seconds for a, a physician to just look at this data and go, oh, we've, got, we've got problems of the data entry point of, of service. And so get involved with these. It's, you're, you're definitely going to be able to add value, and there's definitely money to be, uh, to be saved if you can do it well. Similarly, I want to talk about a second article. This one's in Modern Healthcare, January 10th, by Maria Castellucci. Next generation ACOs model hasn't saved money, the study finds. So this is the about the experimental next-gen accountable care organization model from Medicare and saying that it didn't save money during its first two years of performance, according to an analysis released on Friday from the agency. Rather than reducing Medicare spending, the next-gen ACO model, which is now in its fifth and final year, added $93.9 million to net Medicare spending during 2016 and 2017, the first two years of the program. The study, which was conducted by researchers at the University of Chicago and commissioned by the CMS, said the increase wasn't statistically significant enough at first glance. It appears to be, though, a blow for supporters of the model who claimed that it's saving Medicare money. According to the study, Medicare was unable to achieve savings during the first two years of the program because they had to pay out more in savings than they recouped. So this was a shared savings model. And in these next-gen models, they are taking both upside and downside risk. Um, in fact, before accounting for the payouts CMS, uh, before they had to account for the payouts that CMS made, the model actually did decrease Medicare spending by $123 million during the first two years. They just had to spend money to give back to the providers as part of the shared savings. Um, if, this is from Administrator Seema Verma. If shared savings payouts were not considered, the model would appear to have decreased spending across performance years one and two. In addition to the analysis, the CMS also released data from 2018 participants. Of the 50 next-gen ACOs that participated in 2018, 38 got bonuses for reaching cost and quality targets, while the remaining 12 had losses and were first forced to return money to CMS. The leader here which was Southwestern Health Resources Accountable Care Network, a jointly owned venture here by the Texas Health Resources and UT Southwestern Medical Center. They achieved $36.4 million in shared savings in 2018, which was the largest amount of all the participants in the program. In second place was Trinity Health ACO, which achieved $22.4 million in shared savings. On the other end of the spectrum here, we've got Partners Community Physicians Organization, which is part of the Partners Healthcare Program. 
they lost 17.2 million in 2018 and that the organization lost the most of any group and is no longer participating in the program hill physician medical lost 11.2 million it's also no longer in the program the participation for this year and the model is down compared to 2018. so why is this article important number one it just shows you how hard it is to make money in pop health many have tried and many have failed a few are now showing some success i think it's unfair to say to measure this program based on years one and two because the the time it takes to deploy and integrate the technology that you need to do population health successfully is more than a one or two year project I think you do have to give this one the full five years to be fair and to really judge whether it's working. And that is because of how difficult this is to do, both in terms of clinical operations and making changes happen, that's not a one-year thing either. And then putting the technology in place and the, just the huge number of pieces of the technology that have to be in place to do population health well, I think it, it takes years and years to do this. So. It's really exciting, though, that uh, Southwestern Health Resources was able to stand out and make money over multiple years. I think those dollars are starting to get significant. And so if you're part of an ACO or have the ability to, to get involved in this space, again, you can definitely show value if you can help with the informatics that supports the, cl the clinical decision support that's involved here or just helping to find patterns in care where you can identify cost savings or opportunities for uh, better efficiency. I think CMIOs need to be able to speak intelligently about ACOs. It's nothing we ever get trained on. It's all on the job learning. If you haven't been to it, the uh, innovation.cms.gov site is a good place to start learning and help get you up to speed. I believe that it is definitely worth your time to understand the these payment models because even if it fails it's worthwhile knowing what didn't work and medicare is not getting out of this value-based um, payment plan programs here this is this is the wave of the future if even if this doesn't work there'll be iterations on it and more to come next one this one i took from cleveland clinic it was just one of their news releases and I really liked it here. So Cleveland Clinic appoints Lara Jehi, MD, Chief Research Information Officer. And let's see, Dr. Jehi has been appointed the inaugural, let's try that word again, inaugural Chief Research Information Officer at Cleveland Clinic. In this newly created position, she will establish and oversee a robust research informatics environment to advance biomedical research throughout Cleveland Clinic. She'll work closely with information technology, research, finance, and other key departments to optimize the enterprise's digital infrastructure to support research activities and accelerate new treatment for patients. As healthcare has become vastly more data intensive, the chief research information officer role will bridge research and patient data with clinical care. That came from James Young, the chief academic officer. Dr. Jehi's expertise as both a data-based researcher and physician will provide strategic vision to leverage large clinical informatics systems to drive innovation. And just to give you a little background on Dr. Jehi, I hope I'm saying that right again. Uh, professor of Neurology, Cleveland Clinic, chairs several key commissions in the International League Against Epilepsy and the American Epilepsy Society. She has more than 100 peer-reviewed publications and 10 book chapters and is a regular reviewer for NIH study sections. 
clearly an underachiever. Anyway, I thought this one was interesting because it highlights just a, it's kind of like a CMIO. It's a CMIO that's deeply research focused. Uh, there's lots of different ways of being a CMIO, I guess. There's CHIOs and uh, there's this, the, now the research positions here and just a variety of different ways of getting involved. So if research is your thing, uh, I think it's great that Cleveland Clinic is going this direction and uh, highlights it with this press release. And it's certainly a direction you may want to consider if you're, if you're in an academic institution and really love that research pathway. Let's do, let's just do one more here. This one was, a, it was a, a guest column that was written in Health IT Outcomes, December 20th. It's a little bit older, but I just stumbled across it. And it's written by Kayla Matthews. Why medical dictation is still better than voice recognition for now. While health professionals increasingly use voice recognition and artificial intelligence-backed software programs for clinical documentation, they yield errors in 7% of dictated words. While this number may seem like a small margin of error, it still leaves room for compromises in healthcare quality and patient safety. Uh, quote some numbers here. The AI voice recognition accuracy ranging from 88.9 to 96%, although the vendors are marketing it at 99% effective. Dictation and transcription, however, have a 99.6% accuracy rate, significantly reducing the risk of error and malpractice. Plus, for clinical documentation, speech recognition has proven slower than keyboard and mouse documentation. I want to pause on that for a second. I believe that depends on the complexity of what it is you're dealing with. Sure, when I'm seeing a patient in the clinic with stable hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol, I absolutely can use my little speed phrases and just get right through that with a handful of clicks. Now we have speed buttons. I can document that with three clicks and my entire HPI is done and I can do my assessment and plan very similarly and move on. But if I'm seeing a patient with really unusual and complex symptoms and that I really want to capture the story and wax poetic about the differential diagnosis, I want to dictate that, whether it's dictation or transcription, whatever. I want to use my words to try to come across and the mouse clicks are not going to be the, the way that you can accurately get that across. And typing, uh, I'm, I'm working with some physicians now, typing is just not their thing. They're really, they're really bad typists, which is fine. They need to be able to use some kind of tool to, to help them interact with the EMR and get the documentation done. So um, that part about speech recognition is proven slower than keyboard and mouse documentation. Yeah depends on what it is that you're doing. All right, continuing. Another advantage of software is that physicians who use it can attend to more patients and earn more money. It also reduces expenditure by eliminating the need for a transcriptionist. Once again, though, one must ask if the potential benefit is worth the risk of error. In most cases, a physician decides to implement voice recognition in his or her office. He still or she needs to either re-edit documentation or hire a transcriptionist to edit it in real time. As a result, either the doctor is wasting his time fixing records or he's obligated to hire a transcriptionist to ensure everything is accurate and organized properly. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen doctors hiring transcriptionists to fix their voice recognition uh, issues. Uh, to be honest, most voice recognition that's being done these days when you're hiring a transcriptionist, that voice recognition, the first pass is being done by the computer and then a human being is coming behind. So 
I guess in effect you are getting a transcriptionist doing it, but you're also getting the computer um, with these services that are out there because they need to make money as well. And I think the artificial intelligence is good enough to get a pretty good start. Now, if we eliminated all of this, I would lose all of my humor when I get to read notes and find all the glaring uh, errors that happen from the voice dictation that just makes you laugh sometimes. But seriously, I have, I'm not seeing where voice recognition errors by, by Dragon or Emodal is leading to problems with uh, clinical care. I'm just not seeing that a radiologist, when they're talking about pneumonia, gets misinterpreted and someone thinks it's something else. I haven't seen it. Perhaps you have. I'm not. They're, the author here is quoting the concerns of safety and quality. I think, yeah, you don't look great when you make some of these errors. Sometimes that what comes out is, is completely unintelligible. But I have seen that with voice transcription as well, where the transcriptionist cannot understand. Uh, one of our providers had a very thick accent and the transcriptionist could not transcribe lots of different parts of the text. And this provider ended up hundreds of charts in the deficiency pile, was getting ready to get tossed off of medical staff because had to go close all these things. And when that provider switched over to voice recognition, has had absolutely no delinquent charts in months and months and months. So there's pros and cons to each. And I have, I'm sure in your systems, you have some providers that just will not transfer from transcription over to the voice recognition. Most of us, I think, have really enjoyed the ability to have instant notes, particularly progress notes. I need to know what you're thinking about, and I don't want to wait for it to go off the transcription and come back. And the same thing with your op note, and the same thing with your, uh, your discharge summaries. I just think the speed at which medicine is moving these days, that something that's taking hours to return may not meet your needs anymore. Um, let's see if there's anything else in this. Oh, yeah, the future of dictation. The prevalence of dictation errors in health records and medical documentation combined with a lack of physician review suggests developers should focus their efforts on integrating both the programming and sufficient review into the existing clinical workflow, which also implies the need for improved contextual understanding for more accurate transcriptions. Future studies may commit to creating a system that recognizes repeated phrases and sentence structure based on the user's own vocabulary and grammatical mannerisms. Yes, yes, yes. Love that. That is the direction we need to be going in. I think we're getting there. Uh, when we switched over to, we use Dragon. We're Dragon Medical One Shop. Whatever it is, that's cloud-based, whether it's more computing power, whatever it is about that tool. If you haven't used Dragon in the last few years, this is just it was eye-opening for our providers. They truly enjoy dictating now. It's not perfect. You really should still proofread. I find most of my providers don't. They just make the best of it and they'll put some phrase at the bottom saying, uh, done with dictation software, kind of forgive me for any silly things that appear in there, which I don't think you get a pass on that from anyone. Uh, you're supposed to proofread your note. But anyway, I do believe that is significantly better than where it was when I was using Dragon. I think we started with well, eight or seven or eight, whichever it was. I know it was, you had to stick the CD-ROM in the drive to get your Dragon. That's how old I am. So, all right, uh, let's wrap it up. 
Let's stop right here. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next.